I know there's even programs out there that you have your entire warehouse mapped out, you know, XYZ locations, and it gives you your pick sheet. It has already optimized the path in which you're supposed to walk. You go pick those in that path and you drop off the bin and you start all over again. Hello and welcome back to For the Future, F-O-U-R, The Future. I'm your host, Mark. And this is Michael. And today we're going to be talking about, you know, what makes up the factory of the future. But first, we always have a little bit of I-4.0 news. And today we're going to kind of just go over the interesting space that is electric cars and all the manufacturers that are have always been electric or are starting to get into the electric car game. Yeah, and so today I'm a I'm a Toyota fanboy, so I'm going to bring their big press release. I think it was about 4 or 5 days ago now. Um so Toyota just announced that they're jumping all in on electric cars, which I'm super excited about. Um they just launched the Beyond Zero line. I think they're going to they're calling it BZ. Um and then like an X4 for all their different lines. So like they, they launched the artwork for the, the BZ four X, I think is what it is. It's basically a electrified RAV four, um, which I think is super cool because I gave up on my dream to get a RAV four prime, which is their plug-in hybrid right now um, <laughs> that I thought was super cool. So I'm excited to see that coming down the line. I know I knew they would be doing this eventually. So it's exciting to see them making the big announcement that they're basically launching like 15, basically an electric version of every car that they have right now, which I think is super cool. Because like everyone knows Tesla. Tesla's has been the market leader, still is, for pure electrics. But I think it is interesting, like the transformation from, we have our gas engines, and now we are seeing a lot of the plug-in hybrids, which are cars that have gas engines, but can run you know 30 to 50 miles maybe on pure electric energy. And then even one step further to the all-electric. And I know one big company that's doing quite a bit is GM and they are releasing their Hummer lines. So there's like the Hummer pickup truck and now they just released a Hummer SUV. So those are coming out late 2021 and then I think even like mid 2022 for like the SUV. But it is cool they they have announced their electric line. I forget what like they call like their, you know, chassis and like what makes up the core of this electric line. But it was by like through 2025, they're going to try to electrify. It was like 30 some models of their cars, which is pretty crazy because, I mean, they have a ton of models, but 30 is still a lot of different cars uh, to be fully electric. Yeah. And I think the dates are really exciting too, right? Like how quickly they're trying to bring this online. And I think it's good because before what they were doing is like taking uh, a gasoline car frame and design and then slapping a motor in there and saying, okay, it's electric. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it doesn't work that way, right? So it's it's exciting to see that they're building these electrified platforms from from the beginning with the intent of them being fully electric. And they're I think they're going to compete on the level of Tesla. Because I think that was one of Tesla's big um, selling points was that they were designing the car around the battery pack and around those electric motors and things like that. Yep. And, and I think that's what made such a huge difference for them. Now, it'll be interesting to see do you want Tesla's really advanced autopilot and kind of the California vibe and the silly video games and stuff? Or do you want Toyota reliability, beautiful build quality? Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's going to be interesting what the consumer chooses, especially once we see the prices for everything. 
and uh, you know what people stylistically end up picking. So it's yeah. going to be interesting to see. And it's not going to be like a 2030 or a 2040 type thing. I mean, we're talking 20 like in three or four years that this is yeah. like these cards are going to be launching and like all 30 of them, which is I think insane to bring 30 new cars to market that are fully electrified. Um, yeah. That is going to be one hell of an engineering feat. So I'm excited to see it happen. Yeah, it is interesting. Like, because the companies are so big, like Toyota and GM, they have the infrastructure and the manpower to like mm-hmm. swap out entire facilities to start making electric cars. Whereas Tesla has what, like maybe two working Gigafactories, maybe like one for sure. And then, like, I think Giga Berlin is somewhat operational. And then, same with uh, the one that's in China, it's also like somewhat mm-hmm. operational, but they don't have. <laughs> the plethora of resources and just everything as, as much as a gym or, or a Toyota would have. Yeah. I think it's going to be a little bit, a little bit of the case of the sleeping giant, right? Where, mm-hmm. you know, Toyota can Toyota or GM or Ford or whoever has all these sleeping factories. They can just, you know, just take that fire hydrant and just move it right and say, okay, we're making electric cars now. Um, yeah. And who's going to win that battle? Is it going to be, you know, the fully automated, like brand new factories, like can Tesla put together factories fast enough to keep up? Or is it going to be, um, is it going to be our, you know, traditional car manufacturing companies that are basically just, okay, now we're building electric cars instead of gas cars. So it'd be interesting to see who wins or how that shakes out over the next, like I said, three or four years, which I think it's going to be super exciting. It's going to be good for the consumer either way for people that are, you know, interested already in electric cars or are starting to think about it. This might be the jumping point for, people to start um, diving in with electric. So I know I love my hybrid. I think it's awesome. And uh, I wish it was fully electric. So I'm excited for this. So on to the main topic of the day, the factory of the future. But I really think it's important to kind of take a step back and see how has like the warehouse been changing. And from what the research I did today, it seems that around like World War One, the main tool for a warehouse was like a hand cart. So you load your boxes onto a cart and you push that around. And without the forklift, the max you could really stack boxes was like eight to like a max of 12 feet. So just imagine that you could go into a warehouse and be able to, you know, take a couple steps up and be able to see across the warehouse. That's that's not the case today. The mm-hmm. product goes up to the ceiling now or, you know, whatever is the safe height for whatever you're loading. During World War II, forklifts were being mass produced. And in addition to that, like the wood pallet, which is like such a funny thing to think of, like, yeah, I guess the wooden pallet was created for a purpose to be used with a forklift. And so when that happened, you could stack those pallets and then those pallets could be stacked, you know, 30 feet in the air. So just that increase in efficiency and use of space was a huge leap. And that's not even, you know, World War One to World War Two. That's not a crazy amount of time. Mm-hmm. So now go, you know, a jump further into the future and kind of like where we are, you know, now, maybe like the late eighties to now we have our conveyors, you know, automation software was starting to be created. There's different interconnectivity between, you know, your ordering systems, the inbound, the in process and the outbound product and all that, how it you know works with warehouse management systems. And now we're even bringing in robotics and forklifts are getting smaller and faster and I know a lot of facilities have these guide wires. So once a forklift goes down an aisle, their forklift finds the guide wire, locks in, and then they don't have to drive it anymore. They just go you know, forward and back, up and down, but they don't have to worry about hitting uh, the product at all. 
So I think it's just really interesting to see how this has all changed. And whenever I think about that history, I try to think of, you know, what is coming up. I thought it'd be interesting to kind of do like a little pros and cons list of this future of warehouse automation. So with the pros, I kind of split it into three parts. The first one is that you aren't as dependent on a local workforce because with the introduction of robotics and automation, you can hopefully do the same amount of work with a smaller, you know, man-made workforce. And another way to kind of think about this is that those employees who are doing all that manual labor can now be better utilized somewhere else in the facility. So it's not as always, I know a lot of the talk when you're in a warehouse is, you know, oh, we got to get our head count lower mm-hmm. just to, for cost savings, you know. But on the flip side, if you have those same employees doing work somewhere else, you can hopefully increase throughput without having to get rid of people. I think we've actually talked about that kind of concept before, like with the increase in automation, I feel like a lot of people think, oh, well, all this automation is going to take all of our jobs. Well, I think of it kind of as, and with more automation, hopefully our employees can do less of the work that's hard on their bodies and we can use their minds and you know their bodies still, but like to be more productive that way. Yeah, move them into a higher value work, right? Where basically yeah. their yeah, their their hour is spent doing something that's more fulfilling to them and also at the end of the day more valuable to the company too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly it. The next kind of pro that I put on here is kind of like the increase in safety and efficiency. So hopefully with all this, you know, automating processes and I even like the the stretch Boston dynamic robot moving boxes for you. That could get rid of risk for employees and increase safety. Like I think isn't back strain like the number one uh, employee injury that's recorded by like OSHA? Like I think it's still yeah. back injuries. Re- yeah, repetitive repetitive motion injuries are um, unfortunately really common in uh, these type of fields, right? Where you're you're bending down and picking up. Um, mm-hmm. you know, relatively heavy boxes. And that's what people don't think about is there a lot of people will think, well, I go to the gym and I, you know, I deadlift, you know, a, a lot of weight 10 times, you know, for three sets or whatever. And what you don't realize is that that's fine. Like, you know, as long as you have good form, that's okay and good for you actually in short bursts. And then your body mm-hmm. has a day or two to recover and then you get back to it. And it's a very controlled, confined thing when you're moving random size boxes around to random heights from random, you know, from the floor or from over your head down to tables. And you're doing that for 8, 10, 12, 14, unfortunately, sometimes hours yeah. a day, five, six, seven days a week. Sometimes it, that repetitive stress is what builds up and what causes injury to people. And it's, it's really sad that, um, you know, people end up with those type of injuries uh, just by performing their tasks. But it's very different and uh, I, I definitely remember having that conversation with with individuals before where, you know, people say, well, it's I feel like I'm just getting a workout here at work, moving boxes around. And it's like, yes, it can feel like you're at the gym here for a little bit. The problem is when you do this day in and day out on overtime, you know, with, and you don't give your, your body a chance to rest. So that's that those are the type of what I would think of as um, opportunities for management to look at automation, right, where. There are those repetitive stress uh, concerns, and those are the perfect thing to remove from the process and say, this isn't this isn't safe for a human being, right? Long term, this isn't safe, right? I mean, I think we've gone through and put guarding on a lot of the things that'll rip your fingers off and, you know, electrocute you and stuff. That's immediate, very dangerous. Um, and then I think that, you know, one of the next focuses will be or, 
and for some companies is a focus is to look at those longer term, those injuries that can build up over time, right? Exactly. And then so with that, that was like, you know, increased safety. And another one is like efficiency. So I think back to before we had computers telling us, you know, where to pick, if you had a like, let's see, you have to go pick parts. You had a sheet of paper that says we need these parts picked in this bin. You go around and you check off on your piece of paper. I got that one. I got that one. I got that one. You turn in that slip and it goes and gets shipped out. But oh no, you missed X amount of units because you forgot to check it on your sheet. Well, now you have scanners, RF scanners and computers telling you, okay, let's go to this location, grab three units. I need to confirm those three units. They're in the bin and I go to my next spot. So, you know, less errors, more efficiency. I know there's even programs out there that you have your entire warehouse mapped out, you know, XYZ locations, and it gives you your pick sheet. It has already optimized the path in which you're supposed to walk. You hmm, go pick cool. those in that path and you drop off the bin and you start all over again. So it, it really is with all this in, uh, increase in technology and automation, it's pretty crazy how far we've come from, you know, paper sheets and even like only having hand cards during World War One to and stacking <laughs> boxes eight high, you know, eight feet high. Like we've come a long way. Have you ever been part of a manual inventory count, by the way? Have you ever done that before? We do them. I have not like had to be on site. Oh, okay. You have yeah. I've had to do it before. And it's the like, that is the worst couple days I've ever spent in, in the factory ever. Oof. Absolutely miserable. It's always in August. <laughs> it's towards the end of the fiscal year. It's hot. It's sweaty. Yeah. You're climbing around, digging through pallets. It's the worst thing. <laughs> and it's because people, you know, punch the wrong number into the system or whatever. And eventually mm-hmm. all those errors stack up over the years. So Anyway, yep. yeah, if we can get away from that, that's worth it. <laughs> so there were our pros. There's just a few cons that I wanted to go over as well. And I think the biggest one for a lot of companies is that it's really expensive. You know, software consultants getting all set up, get the infrastructure needed to store all the data like we talked about, robotics. Like, it's just an expensive process. I think that's pretty straightforward and pretty easy to realize. Not that it's not worth it, but it's, it's definitely... <laughs> something everyone has to think about. I think it can be challenging to build a, a business case for it too. Is that like that huge investment? It can be really daunting to say, well, then how many years is it going to take to pay back? And it's like, there's so many little things to add up like that. So anyway, I think that's, mm-hmm. that's daunting for, like you said, it's very daunting for some little plucky engineer who's trying to bring in, you know, some new software or something. So anyway. So the next con, number two, is just maintenance. So you have all, let's see, you have more computers, you have more sensors, you have more robotics, you have like RF scanners. Now you need more people, more IT to help troubleshoot issues that are inevitably going to come up. And so that's an, another added cost that you have to think about. And then one thing that I was, when I was you know reading about all this is automation. And I think we'll kind of bring this up later is that it works better when work is highly repeatable. So if you're doing the same thing all the time, it's like, let's say a, a car going through a, uh, like Tesla, when they make cars, it's the same process. Like they have like four colors of paint. Besides that, it's the same car. And that's because making the same thing over and over and over again is a lot easier than making a customized product. When I was thinking about this, I was like, oh, this makes sense. Like me as an industrial engineer, when I do time studies, if the process is repeatable, it's pretty easy to get a really accurate standard because if something isn't variable, it's not changing, you can predict and then, you know, give credit for and make work standards for that process. It gets really difficult when the work is variable 
because mm-hmm. if you're making a goal for units per hour and all these different parts come in quantities of a hundred or two, like it's really hard to try to make a level set goal for yeah. that process. So yeah, you're doing an hour to hour board and it's, it's a hundred pieces for two hours and then it's mm-hmm. three per hour for a couple hours and then it's 50. It's, you know, it's then you're plus you 10. Yeah. You're plus 10 for the day, but you, you know, you really were short on the, the couple of the slower pieces. Right. Mm-hmm. The other thing too, is to bring into that is for a con and I don't know if, if you see this as much, but for like a product-based company, um, you really need to like almost set up and like design your products in a way that they are standardized, right? Like if you walk into a random company with a whole bunch of different custom weird things that they've product portfolios that they've just, you know, acquired or ended up with or custom projects that became products at some point. If you don't have that like core, those core pieces of like repeatability to focus around and build automation in it's a pretty i mean it's a 10 times more daunting task because now you need to like restructure your entire npd efforts to like design a whole range of products that will work for automation so there's probably a lot of companies where there's so much variability just in their product mix that like they almost have to start from like a fundamental like business plan standpoint and like really get back to the to the ground level and start from scratch Um, Mm. I think that's, I think that's a huge hurdle for many, many companies that are, um, more product based again, right. Um, to overcome as far as automation goes and like, they see all the shiny things out there. They see all the articles going by on LinkedIn and they get the emails and it's like from the consultants and stuff. And they're like, you don't want to mess with this. Like, there's no way that, (laughs) that this is going to be an easy job to, to undertake. So. Um, I think that that leads nicely into talking about uh, going from warehousing to more into like factories where people are assembling or steel is getting cut into into product. And uh, it's exciting to see a lot of these similar um, technologies and uh, offerings that are going on a warehousing also happening on the other side of the business, right? Making the product that goes into the warehouse. So um, I think a, I think a great way to think of this is that you know industry 3.0, is your automation by itself, right? You're you're picking out those prime projects where you do have a repeatable process and you say, that is a cornerstone project. We're going to automate just that piece of the cell. And then over time, you kind of, you pick your, your biggest bang for your buck project. Then you go to the next one, the next one, the next one. Eventually you end up with like a hodgepodge of automation pieces. And then someone has a bright idea. Let's connect all these things and get them to talk to each other. And well, what's happening in this early step really affects things further down the line wouldn't it be great if those further down processes could feed back to that first process right i think that's that's where uh i industry 4.0 really comes into play for a production um, a manufacturing side company and some of the things that are interesting to look at um, for those of you who do work in these type of environments um, automated and on lights are a great drop-in solution for assembly lines or really most things to kind of bring you from the 1980s into the 20, 2010s, 2020s, give you <laughs> dashboards and um, do some real-time data analysis tools. I'm, uh, you know, these solutions aren't aren't low cost in all cases, but um, they can be really powerful and they're very easily bootstrapped onto uh, to whatever you have in your factory, right? Where you don't, you might not have everything set up and perfectly ready to go for an automation system. But these, ty- these type of add-on systems, add-on and on lights, 
can be a great solution to bring that type of automation and kind of interconnectivity um, and dashboard type interfaces to uh, to an older factory. Another really cool technology that I always uh, you know go to the trade shows and stuff and see this and the idea is that there are auto- there are machining companies that will essentially you can feed in raw stocks like a block of aluminum and you get a fully inspected completed part out on the end of the line. And this can include everything from machining to lathing, turning, milling, grinding, um, full inspection, and you know, actually in inline validation testing. Sometimes they'll actually build in um, validation and testing equipment like inline. So we're talking about like a fully qualified component or assembly done on the outside, and you can actually the entire system can then retool itself for different parts. So. We're talking about essentially you can hit go at the beginning of the line. You say, I need 10 pieces of this, 20 pieces of that, 15 pieces of those, right? And Mm -hmm. the entire assembly line can reconfigure itself, produce those 10 parts. They spit out at the end with inspection reports, uh, testing validation data, everything done. All the machines get fed in from like a linear pallet pool for the machining centers. All the, the blocks and the fixturing and the tooling and everything get swapped out, brought in, and then it runs those next 20 parts, fully inspected, tested, drop out at the end of the line, put on a pallet. I mean, even like package put on pallets all the way to that level. I think that's a, it's a, a lot of times it seems like it's a little bit of a contrived example. Like the machining guys are trying to sell more machines and their services <laughs> to connect all these machines. But it is a really, it is kind of like a factory of the future kind of demo where you can, you can imagine a future where like lot sizes could literally be just a few pieces at a time and you could really get things down to just in time type manufacturing workflows where you literally could have a customer just real time order five of these, six of those, two of these. The machining centers can run those, run these, run those, and then it all just happens automatically. Um, so linear pallet pools is a good thing to start looking into in those. A lot of times you do have to go to the trade shows and like talk to sales guys and stuff oh, okay. to see some of those videos. Um, I wasn't, I was trying to show these to, to Mark and I was able to find one from DMG Mori where they had a pretty good example of some of this stuff. So you look around, look around online if you're interested in that um, or always feel free to contact us and we can put you in touch with some resources there. But really cool stuff to see uh, essentially like a drop in, uh, a production line, fully automated, like raw stock in, completed, inspected, tested, packaged, palletized parts on the way out. And I just, I think that's like full on, like, you know, future, futuristic stuff, like stuff you dreamed about when you were a kid, sort of, right? Push a button and parts just happen. That's what it seems like the next step. Like that, that example right there is like the next step. It almost seems like, I'm not sure if there's like a cartoon or movie where they, you know, like they set something down hit a button, beep, bop, boop, you know, whatever. And like another mm-hmm. thing pops out the other end. Like that's what's happening. We don't see what went into it, but you put in the raw and out mm-hmm. came the finished product. Like that's pretty incredible. Just let just let the customization guys, the consultants will handle it all for you. You just got to <laughs> tell them what, what parts you want, <laughs> how many yeah. you get ordered per year, what testing you want done. They'll take care of it for you, man. Just got to cut the check. <laughs> um, yeah, and I mean, kind of going to the the point uh, where we talk about one of the cons and warehousing, where you you often end up with a situation where there's all kinds of cool automation things, but that variability can kill you, right? So, um, 
that's one of the, I think that's a situation where you've got to have a really big product line, maybe with contract manufacturing for the next 10 years or something, because that'll be a huge investment. But once you make it, um, I mean, you basically have a turnkey solution that you just have maintenance engineers keeping the tooling running and making sure mm-hmm. the, the parts are looking good. But I mean, you have inline inspection type equipment that's making sure the machines are cutting things correctly and tolerances are coming out correctly and actually testing the parts um, to make sure they work in like a actual functional test. And maybe taking a step back from that, because I think that is like a full on futuristic look at, you know, what a manufacturing plant could look like. Um, inland inspections are really is a big buzzword. Those, these guys uh, like capture three D's one company that I've looked at over and over again. And um, I need to get around to uh, running that project eventually, but essentially that's like a, it's like a blue light laser scanner and it, Okay. It, you you put it on like a known size part and you just have like a rotate like a rotate table table so the part will just spin around in front of it and it'll create like a point cloud like a really really accurate point cloud of the part and it'll actually compare that and it'll make like an stl file like for printing mm-hmm. um it'll make a really high resolution stl file and then it'll line that up with your cad file and so it'll show you like a heat map, like where the part is like sunken in from like where it's supposed to be in CAD, like <laughs> high spots, low spots, like fully automated inspection. It's super duper cool. It takes a ton of work to set up and, you know, you got to do all the work in CAD and stuff. But um, it's a little bit more real world for like, I think a lot of manufacturers like that is something that you essentially like that could be part of your inspection lab. So like when you wheel parts over and like they start pulling out the gauging and stuff like that. You could set that part on a table, hit go, and it runs the program. You flip the part over, spins around, and it's got the CAD file all loaded in there. It does the comparison, shows the heat map, pre-qualifies it, or shows what's in spec, out of spec, whatever. Um, and so that's that's another uh, awesome kind of example for where, where this technology can go. And sort of the bridge going from like, this is where we're at. We have automated cells kind of mixed in with manual processes these type of technologies can kind of integrate nicely in with that. Um, and that helps you build towards like, wouldn't it be great if you just had a fully automated, like raw part in to finish part out type production line and what that could look like someday. Exactly. So, so that's what it looks like from a more manufacturing side of things. So where are we going next? I think we talked about it a little bit with these uh, raw parts in, you know, finished package parts on the way out, but what else is, what else is on the horizon? I'm like when I think of like this the future, I keep seeing pictures of Tesla where it's like four robotic arms per car, throwing in seats, throwing in dashboards, drilling it all down, and then it like slides the next one. It's being automatically welded and automatically, you know, pressed uh aluminum and everything. Like I'm like wondering how many like manual labor people does Tesla have versus like their engineers working on the robotic side of it. I'm wondering at one point does do the out do the engineers like outweigh the other labor that is creating you know the rest of the car like i feel like that's the next part where those people who are creating the car and stuff are transitioning over to being the people who run the robots and do maintenance on the robots and stuff because that seems the more automated process to me yeah exactly and here's a here's a report from uh, Tesla is that they've got 10,000 people employed at the plant and 30,000 indirect jobs in the surrounding regions. Dang. So it might, it might even be like a, like a one to three ratio, one to four ratio there. Um, or if that includes like 
well, they don't really have a marketing department, but like HR and stuff. Is that like also indirect though? I'm like wondering Probably. what. I mean, I'm like, what's the indirect with, factory? I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that's like engineers and manu- a lot of like robotics yeah. and manufacturing engineers and stuff. But yeah, I know Tesla just has an army of engineers and my friends mm-hmm. and colleagues are getting hired to go work in California and, or Nevada and Texas now um, all the time. So I know they are just churning and burning through just an army of young, talented engineers and scientists. So, um, yeah, I think that's their approach to it, though, right, is that if they sink all this all this time and effort into getting these automated processes up front, the reward is huge, right? And once you've, like, kind of got a system that can make cars, it's not that hard to fit in, like, a different car. Like, to, when, you know, mm-hmm. when you're bringing on the next, the next Model X or S or whatever... It, it's not a far, sh- it's not too far of a reach to go from, okay, we're building model threes. Now we're building the model 3.5s. Yeah. Know? Obviously it's going to be a ton of work and retooling a whole lot of, you know, cam files and um, a lot of testing, but it's a little bit different than, you know, where do we get our robots from and how are we going to make this many batteries? And <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah I, I, I guess I agree. I think we'll see more and more companies that are uh, taking the plunge and, you know, okay being okay with ROIs that aren't quite as um, aren't quite as aggressive as a lot of current companies are. Uh, you know, if it's not a two, three, four year payback, they don't want to hear about it. Right. And it's like, okay, well, what opportunities are you leaving on the table? That could be like six, seven, 10 year paybacks. Right. And I think a lot of these like large automation systems, maybe I'm wrong, but I'm guessing a lot of them are on payback scales where it, it might look more like that versus a two year or one year payback. Right. Um, yeah. So maybe we'll maybe we'll actually get some longer sighted companies back in and uh, floating up to the top rather than, you know, turn and burn SPACs and uh, <laughs> things like that. Right. Startups that are just yeah. we don't really have a plan to make profit profit, but uh, we're worth a billion dollars. So in, please invest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's going to be I think that's where it's going to be going. Um, I mean, sort of like and then just putting it towards problems that are too big to solve with our our current like manufacturing practices. Like I think the battery situation, like 18650 cells are like batteries for all the electric cars that people, that people want. Right. I think that's going to require like a whole different level of like when they say giga, right. And now they're talking, you know, they're going beyond that giga Terra factories, whatever. Um, I think it really does need to be at that scale to be able to supply you know, the whole world with the amount of battery cells that they want. Right. Um, and yeah. I think those type of endeavors, you know, as, as human as humanity, like, you know, kind of starts doing bigger, crazier projects. Um, it's going to probably, re- it's going to require some like next level manufacturing. And I think a lot of these tools that we talked about are going to be the bits and pieces that make up those factories that are like, you know, they're not like a worker's not putting out 10 times more than they did a hundred years ago. They're putting out like a thousand or 10,000 times more than, they did you know 100 years ago or whatever or even 10 years ago so that is where we are going to end today's episode we would love to hear from you guys where do you think the future of warehousing and manufacturing is going we really want to hear from you so our email is wide open for the future pod at gmail.com f-o-u-r the future pod at gmail.com shoot us an email really curious to see what you guys have to say and besides that, if you have any you know suggestions for episodes or any other comments on our previous episodes, also send them there too. We would uh, love to hear from you. And with that, thank you very much for listening. 
and we'll uh, be back next time. Until next time. Bye.